1: Hello and welcome back to the Train Happy Podcast. My name is Tally Rye, and this week I am joined by a very popular returning guest. That is Dr. Joshua Bullrich. Now, if you listened to my previous episode with Dr. Joshua, you may remember that we got into all things weight, health, diets, weight stigma, and we had a really great conversation. That was back in November. And I will link that episode in the show notes for you if you want to go back and listen to that. But this time, since we, you know, last had him on, Dr. Joshua has become a published author. He's written the book Food Isn't Medicine. And the topic is really discussing how, you know, we're getting a lot of doctors telling us that we need to go keto to solve our issues and we need to, you know... You know cut out x y and z to to be healthy and dr joshua really gets into why this is misleading and problematic and we bust a lot of myths and most importantly answer your questions So just a side note that I do have returning guests and a a request from one of our listeners was that when we have returning guests, can the listeners put forward some questions? And I think that was a fantastic idea. So if you would like to ever put forward a question for a future returning guest, then make sure you're following us on Instagram at train happy podcast. Make sure you're following us there anyway, and you'll have the opportunity to submit your questions through there. It's also a great way to share your train happy moments so this is a long episode this is a a bit of a mammoth one because Dr Joshua just has so much important stuff to say so I hope you appreciate this this discussion but of course before we get into that it is time for train happy trooper of the week this week's train happy moment comes from listener Katrin who says I've always felt guilt around not exercising for long enough, or I've kept an eye on my step count and kept to strict programs or scheduling my workouts. Every Tuesday, I do a yoga workout, but yesterday, I set everything up, started the video I follow, ready to do the workout, but I just couldn't focus and relax to do the class. So instead, I listened to my body and went for a short walk instead and didn't think twice about that fact. I skipped a scheduled workout. It was only when I was listening to your podcast and reflecting on myself that I realised this was such amazing progress. Thank you Tally. Thank you so much for sharing that moment with us Catherine. That is a definite train happy moment. Those small wins where you realise that wow I'm being kinder to myself. I'm Listening to my body, I'm honoring what it's telling me. That is the epitome of a train happy moment. So, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Of course, if you want to have your train happy moment featured on the train happy podcast, then we'd love to hear from you. You can email us train happy podcast at gmail.com, or you can direct message us on Instagram, which is what Katrin did, and you can find us at train happy podcast. Right, like I said, this is a long one, so enough from me, let's get into our conversation with the brilliant Dr. Joshua Woolwich. Welcome back to the podcast, Josh. It is lovely to have you here. You were a popular guest previously, so um, I'm thrilled to have you back. How have you been since we last spoke back in, I think it was November?
0: Or was it that long ago?
1: yeah,
0: it was oh uh, well, lots of things have happened. Um, <laughs> I've been busy uh yeah, specifically the last couple of weeks with with i th- am allowed I'm allowed to call myself a published author now, which is cool. it's a cool title. um so that has been yeah, that's been busy. that has been super busy and stressful, but also very rewarding and quite awesome. so so yeah, that's that's been fun. <laughs>
1: I said we would get you back on when the book had come out. And I'm so glad we have, because I think last time we ended up chatting a lot about weight stigma, BMI, weight and health. So if people are looking for those things, then please go and check out our previous episode because we really covered that there. Um, today, I really wanted to cover with you more of the the Nutribollocks stuff, as you uh, call it, um, in your book. So if you just want to give everyone a quick, Intro to what you do and what your book's about, and um, yeah, then we can just get into it.
0: Ah, well, um, I am, well, I am, for people that don't know me, I'm a, I'm a doctor. Um, I am a surgical doctor in the NHS normally, on a year out, I'm studying for a nutrition master's at present. And uh, I, I have a somehow quite a large ish social media following after starting a weight loss account, like three or four years ago now, uh, and have since changed my concepts and my beliefs around weight and health, around food and dieting um, for 100% for the better. Uh, And I now have far more greater respect for the nuances around these conversations that are almost always left out when people are talking about eat less, move more, food is medicine. Um, So all of that kind of stuff, uh, I like to talk about it on a regular basis, and I was fortunate enough to uh, be given the opportunity to write a book along those lines, uh, which is called "Food Isn't Medicine." Which, and I'll give you, I'll give you the like the the little can the the, the whole campaign spiel because I think actually where we wrote it like it, it feels quite good. And it, so this book is it's my my campaign to push back against the underlying messages that food can cure you if you find the right diet, which is a problem. Um, and all of these kind of false promises, cause they are, they're not true. Um, they often linking our health to our weight and they make eating just super stressful, which is not like we all have a relationship with food. We don't want that relationship to, to be strained or stressful. Um, and I want people to have a more relaxed attitude and to realize that their weight doesn't define their health. So it's a bit of a book of two halves. It's a book talking about the complex nature of weight and health and how, um, that doesn't define either your worth. Or whether or not you're going to live a long life necessarily. Um, And also, it's a book looking at the myths around food and why they're almost always linked to our weight as well. So, there's a nice link between the two of them and hopefully get people to enjoy eating again. So, that's my how's that spiel sound? Does that sound right? I
1: loved it. And I think it's very (laughs) representative of the book. And I should say, we were chatting prior to recording today and you know, I've read a lot of books around this subject and I felt that yours in particular is a really great accessible read, an easy read. You're working through, you know, science and things, but it's very digestible. And so I think for those who are looking for a starting point or some, you know, a introduction, um, this really covers so much and yeah, it was great. Okay, so before we get into like answering the, the Bollocks questions and all that stuff, I have one mm. big thing I want to ask, which is you mentioned in the book that you auditioned for S Club Juniors, and I want to mm. talk about that because I was obsessed <laughs> with them.
0: Uh, well, I was more obsessed with S Club 7.
1: I was uh, obs- uh, and- they were my f- absolute favourite. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to be Joe with the flow.
0: Oh. <laughs> I mean, so I, I want to be want Bradley to be? because he was 100% the coolest. <laughs>
1: he was um, the coolest, yes
0: but but I felt like that was never going to happen. Um but uh yeah, and then I feel like I wouldn't I didn't allow myself to like S Club Juniors because I didn't get in.
1: <laughs> so no, right, I feel they like won't, I was they won't call anymore. Yeah.
0: No, no. No, no. That that wasn't allowed. No, I this was this was fun. I feel like th- this was back in the days when music audition shows were were like a new thing. where like it was Pop Idol, right? Rather yeah. than X Factor. And so they were often in these like dingy little rooms and they weren't they didn't have this fancy huge production around them um and i remember going to this audition with my sister i think i think it was the two of us um sung never had a dream come true which of course remember all the words to still uh we had a list of songs we could pick from uh and they all had to be s club seven songs of course and we were all lined up in a row all of us that had picked never had a dream come true or not all of us but like 20 of us that had picked that song they put us all in a room all in a row and we all had to sing at the same time and they would just walk along this row listening to us and picking people out that they thought sounded good that they would move on to the next stage not me uh (laughs) which i was very hurt i think i had a wonderful singing voice um uh but uh but yeah it wasn't it wasn't a dream come true unfortunately so I'm still never had a Dream Cup. Co- no, I'm, just, I'm kidding. That's way too cheesy. But they, it, was, it was fun. So, But I never got to be in the room with any of the, any of the judges or like, I, I don't think I even watched the show afterwards. So I was too stubborn. I was like, nope, terrible. So I can't remember. I feel like some of the S Club 7, like, members were part of the panel or something. They must have been, right?
1: That would have been extremely exciting. <laughs> I could only have dreamed of auditioning for S Club Juniors. But one of the S Club Juniors, one of the lesser known ones, Hannah, was from my hometown. So oh. when she made it, it was big news. And needless to say, everyone who was about 11 years old at the time, because I think that's about the age I was when this was mm. happening, were extremely jealous, but also like really exciting, um, but extremely jealous.
0: There were like nine of them, wasn't there? Yeah, like there, there, were, there was a lot. There, were there was a
1: lot. The less, there's like the, the well-known members now, which are like Rochelle...
0: Yeah, like the the them, Frankie, yeah, the ones that then, yeah, the Saturdays Saturday. was like, was like the, that was kind of the good thing that came out of S Club Juniors
1: yeah. in terms
0: of they were, the, that was the thing that made it was the Saturdays.
1: Saying that wow. I performed, um, oh, ugh, why is the song completely escaped my mind? But their first song, <laughs> their first big one was, uh, my year six leavers assembly performance. So oh. I forced, I kind of forced it on everyone else in my class. <laughs> <laughs> to do it with me because obviously I just wanted to sing the solo. So Ah uh, yeah, fair.
0: <laughs> of course. Um, and you, an and you got a
1: from day one, you know? So
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: um but who would have thought I'd have you on the podcast and maybe talking about Club Juniors, but I just couldn't Exactly. I, I couldn't get past that particular paragraph in the book. And I just thought, I have to bring this up. I have to.
0: It's right at the beginning. <laughs> like it's, it's just slipped in as like a one-liner as well. Yes. It's just.
1: <laughs> I know, but you don't realise I, I couldn't believe it. Um, I yeah. literally made, I was like, well, I need to write that down because I cannot forget that he did the Eskimo Genius audition. Um, <laughs> and you mentioned previously when you were just giving your book uh, kind of overview that the relationship with food is really important. And I just want to Mm. read aloud a quote from early on in the book, because I actually think this is just really important. And yeah, I I loved this food is an integral part of our lives from birth until death. Yet we tend to disregard the impact of disordered eating behaviors. And I think obviously me personally having experienced a disordered relationship with food, we spoke about your own experiences. Mm on the last episode with a disordered relationship with food, I think people often really uh, underestimate the impacts it can have and, and how impo- that can really impact our mental health as well as our, our, you know, our physical well being. And was that a real big motivation behind writing about that element of disordered eating within the book and busting these NutriBollocks myths? Was that, was that a, a big driving force behind the book for you?
0: yeah i i mean it was a concept that i didn't have much understanding of for a long while um i was of the impression that if you didn't have an eating disorder then it was fine mm. and nothing else was really worth i just didn't consider anything else being something to would be worth paying attention to um and i think it's a real shame because it also it also led me to not understand some of the stuff that had happened in my childhood and some of the ways that I treated food that were impacting me in a negative way. I just didn't, I all of it was like a blind spot to me because I didn't consider it to be a problem unless I was being diagnosed with an eating disorder. Um, and so coming across some of those topics later on gave me this real insight of looking back onto my life and going, wow, this stuff is actually, now I have some understanding of what this is. I can really actually look at it and and deal with it and it's a bit like therapy right where you Mm. if you if you don't if you're not asked the right questions it can be really hard to to deal with stuff that's happened that you may have just put to one side and not thought about and I feel like disordered eating is something that I would argue everyone has an element of um, or has had an element of at some point in time and we don't recognize it we tend to ignore it and I think we could all it would be really good if we could start identifying it and because identifying it's the first step to addressing it really
1: absolutely and i think within fitness even within what we're going to talk about today within the medical field in terms of how eating patterns are getting skewed because of this sort of misinformation or you know confusion around what we should hmm. be doing what we shouldn't be doing that we can't deny that that isn't confusing our own relationship with food and making us second guess ourselves and making us kind of second guess everything and thinking that the only people who know the answers are the gurus who you know speak the loudest they shout the loudest and so you know we feel obligated to listen and follow their their guidance
0: well, also, if we combine our lack of understanding of the importance of not eating in a disordered manner, mm. if we combine that with the fact that we're obsessed with weight and obsessed yeah. with weight loss being the epitome of health and weight loss being the goal, full stop, for everything, it justifies these behaviors that we do. It justifies these behaviors that we take up that are really harmful. It 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 just we it's a really easy way of completely ignoring the harm we might be doing because well, it might lead to weight loss. So that's great. So we don't need to worry about anything else. And also well, disordered eating isn't a problem because I'll just stop doing it. Like it's <laughs> like, if I, I'm starving myself right now, but it's fine. Cause in a month I won't be starving myself anymore and I'll have lost weight. So everything will be peachy and it'll be fine.
1: Yeah. Cause it's just it's, as simple as that. Yeah. It's just as simple as that.
0: Yeah. Like magic. So I want to get
1: into, yeah, these, listener questions um as you are a returning guests the listeners requested to put the questions to you and I felt it was only right Sounds and they put together some awesome questions so I'm going to start with Lillian's question which was um what do you say to people who say that you're not a qualified nutritionist this is a bit of a question but I thought this would be interesting to talk about what you're doing mm. now in terms of your studies and how you see your role as a doctor and talking about nutrition
0: Uh, Well, I tend to go, correct, you are right. Next question. (laughs) So I'm like, well, sure. What's the follow up to that? Um, Most of the time, it's you're not qualified nutritionist, why are you talking about food? Um, And I go, well, that's okay. I don't claim to be a qualified nutritionist. I'm also not claiming in the book or in general life that I know more about nutrition than qualified nutritionists or dieticians. And I've said quite clearly in the book that I think we should be listening to them. And one Mm -hmm. of the problems, one of the issues that I see with the food is medicine rhetoric is that a lot of the time it's propagated by doctors who believe that they are the authority on nutrition without having, because of, well, multiple reasons. Firstly, ego, because doctors have big egos and a lot of them are too proud to admit that they might not know something about a field they haven't studied in. It's kind of crazy that, isn't it? Um, And there's also this weird um thing within medicine that we like to listen to other doctors so if there's another doctor talking about a topic we're more likely to listen to them and i think that's the way that medical school is built or taught and also the way that our training works is that we learn from our peers and so it just becomes this automatic like well a doctor is saying this so i'm going to believe them and so we we are more likely to listen to other doctors about nutrition than dietitians about nutrition and that's a problem um So I have a huge respect for those who are studied in nutrition, hence the reason for going back to university and studying for a master's in the middle of my medical career, which technically has no benefit to my medical training. Um, Something that people liked to to point out when I was considering doing it. They're like, yeah, but what's the point that's not going to help you as an orthopedic surgeon? I'm like, well, I uh, disagree. I feel like we can make this work. And also, I've always been of the opinion that I'm going to pursue my passions and if I can continue to do my different passions, then they will always, they they will always merge and meld at some point in the future and it'll be a waste otherwise um, to not follow them through. Um, So yeah, I'm not a nutritionist. I don't claim to be a nutritionist. Um, It will get some people off my back when I do qualify this year, but that's not the point because also they're just having a qualification after a year doesn't make you an expert either. I'm not Mm -hmm. magically going to be the authority um after a year of studying just like i'm not magically the authority now and i don't think i am and i I don't think that the book portrays me as thinking that i'm the authority i think i hope that the book is a collection of my thoughts put together in a way that ask questions and provoke um provoke you to think about things in a way that you hadn't necessarily thought about it rather than going, I am right. And this is what this is now the the authority on nutrition. Here it is, here's the book, no other books need to be written. I don't think I, I don't think that that's, that's definitely not what I want. And I don't think that's the way that the book comes across.
1: You kind of mentioned in the book that there are two different types. And I think this would be helpful for us people who aren't in the science world, that there mm. are two different types of um science I suppose I think that's mm-hmm. the way to phrase it yeah yeah that, that doctors learn a specific way to look at science studies evidence and you know dietitians and registered nutritionists look at the are looking at studies and stuff in a slightly different way and I wondered if you could just briefly explain that difference
0: yeah so I um I wonder if there's an easy way of making this less science to kind of um I guess maybe it's a bit like um, a plumber and an electrician. They are both jobs that work on the house, work on the home, that work on parts that are integral to the home functioning properly, but they can't just interchange jobs. Like they are Mm -hmm. trained within their own specific profession. And uh, doctors and uh, most healthcare professionals, apart from nutritionists and dieticians, learn about science in a biomedical science fashion. Um, And that biomedical science is, the the crux of it is looking at how drugs and pharmaceuticals and things interact with the human body. It's not just that, but that's a a part of it. Um, And how the body works and how the body functions, but with a very specific look at biological pathways and things like that. Nutritional science is a whole different discipline, and it is a discipline that looks at the way nutrients interact with the body. And that's not the same as the way that drugs interact with the body. And we don't understand that unless we've studied that. And we don't we don't think that that would be different because, again, we have egos as doctors and we think we're magical. And so we look at nutritional science we don't even realize it's a whole different science discipline but we just assume that nutrients will act the same as drugs and because we think we're clever and because we think that we're the authority on health then we think we should know about nutrition too and so we do a little bit of research ourselves and we come to this conclusion that well if we look at these studies in the way that i've been taught to look at science food is medicine oh Mm -hmm. cool i can stop giving my patients drugs i can start giving them diets it's just so problematic and it comes from a lack of understanding that these two things are different disciplines. And it was something that I've, I've been fortunate enough to come across people who are trained in nutritional science, who challenged my lack of understanding on it over the last couple of years and meant that I've gone down pathways of learning about this before I went to before I went back to uni. Um, And that was one of the reasons why I wanted to go back as I was like, okay, well, this is actually a completely different discipline, and this is starting to make more sense as to why people are so are just going down so so such wrong pathways of this that I end up being so problematic. Um, and fortunately, uh, that's been validated in my head as I've been doing this stuff and doing the course. I'm going, yes, this is this makes sense. Like I'm learning lots, obviously, um, but at the same time, I'm like okay, I I've started learning about this in the right way, which is great. Um, so yeah, uh, does that answer the question?
1: It it. does. And I, I think it's really important to know that difference. I certainly didn't necessarily realize that. And actually Mm -hmm. I learned that from reading your book, like, okay, I see there's a real, there is a difference here, but yet to the untrained eye, it's not, it's not clear. And I think it makes total sense why there is an appointed dietitian in a lot of, you know, medical teams, because Mm -hmm. that person is a specialist in that specific thing and they know that better than the doctors there so i think mm. it kind of just goes to show it's an, it's another specialism um that is needed and and should be respected just do you think that there's you know a, you're right i think there's a lot of ego in medicine and i think that dietitians and nutritionists registered nutritionists um don't get the kind of respect sometimes that they deserve because Mm. they're not seen to have you know be a a doctor and and therefore we disregard sometimes what their their knowledge
0: definitely and I think the more doctors that start proclaiming that they are the authority on nutrition which is only increasing by the day um and I, I again I'm not I don't Put technically put myself in that category but I guess some people might so sorry if I'm adding to the problem um, but I hope that I'm not um, the, the more people that do that the more that the public gets more confused as well because they start believing that the person to go for for nutrition and diet advice is a doctor um, and I, I really hope we can get to a place where doctors are taught about nutrition in a sensible and safe way where it doesn't confuse them, where they where it's given the respect that it deserves in regards to that it's a different discipline that we need to be wary of the advice we're giving because it's complicated and we shouldn't just pretend we understand all of it. Um, I I hope we get to a point there where where we know a bit more where we can give some basic advice and refer on. Um, but one of the issues comes from the fact as well that just general, in, in general, within the hospital environment, I don't think that dietitians are uh, treated with enough respect in regards to there aren't enough of them in the mm. hospital. And some of that is funding, but come, some of that comes back to the fact that this is a, uh, this is an added discipline that has happened over the years, rather than, doctors were added to the multidisciplinary team, dieticians were added to the multidisciplinary team that exists in the hospital. Once it was just doctors and doctors did everything and they it didn't go so well. Um, and now we have this team of people um, and there are, uh, for example, there are physiotherapists um, assigned to every single ward in the hospital and that is really important. And there are dietitians assigned to every single ward, but they are much, much thinner on the ground in terms of their numbers than physios are. And we need to get to a point where this isn't the case, ideally, I think, where we start respecting the impact that nutrition can have on people's well-being when it comes to hospital. And once we start recognising that, I think it's going to become easier to start recognising the impact in the community too. And therefore, I don't even know if there is a... I don't think that there are official, like dietitians assigned to specific gp practices i don't think that's i could be wrong here i'm not i'm not sure but i feel like that's not something you really hear about and if it is there aren't enough of them um so yeah we need to we need to start respecting that more definitely Uh, that would be a good thing for our overall health too because food isn't medicine but it it is important for us uh, within our capacity and within our privilege so we need to start paying more attention to it if we can
1: well, that leads really nicely into the next question from Jen because she wanted to know do you think food can help when you're sick? And she used the example of ginger for a sore throat. You know, are <laughs> there cases just thinking I've had a bit of a sore throat the last few days and I made myself um honey, manuka honey actually. i had had it kindly gifted a while ago and it was. Yeah, I did pay for it. And uh I thought that I had a bit of lemon and hot water just to help. Are, you know, are there cases when food can be helpful?
0: Yeah. So it depends the context that we, that we talk about this stuff mm. in. Right. So it's like, yeah, if you have a sore throat um, personally, I like to put whiskey in my, in my, uh, <laughs> my ginger, lemon, and honey drink. Um, but yeah, there are things that will help with the feeling of soreness. Right. Um, it's a bit like I could get myself in dangerous territory here, but it's a bit like um, going to a chiropractor um for for pains or aches it, chiropractors will often um crack your joints uh, just like you can crack your knuckles don't do anything more fancy than that you can't put bones back into alignment we can have a discussion about that later if you'd really like but not necessarily the point of this podcast um but uh now it doesn't mean it's useless but it does mean that we need to understand what it does and it it will temporarily improve your symptoms and allow you to get moving And if that allows you to get moving to the point where you can then strengthen other things and you can, you can do build muscle, et cetera, then that's great, but it's not a fix. Mm -hmm. And so you've got a sore throat um, and you drink honey and lemon and, you know, and whiskey and hot water, a hot toddy. Um, If you do all that, but you continue doing the things, let's say that the sore throat is because you don't know, you, you don't understand the mechanism of singing properly and you've decided to just join a metal band and you're screaming every night. Let's let's go, <laughs> let's go proper wild, right? And that's giving you a sore throat. If you keep doing that, the, the, the hot toddy is not going to fix your throat. It's not going to cure it. It might make it feel better temporarily, but that's it. And so if you've got a sore throat because you've got a cold or, you know, and you've been coughing then yeah, it's going to make it feel nicer. Ginger can act a bit like a, a bit like an anesthetic that the spiciness and there's, there's fancy ways that that can work, Um, but it's not, but it doesn't heal anything. It just, it can just improve your symptoms Um, in terms of things actually healing from food. The only time that happens is if the problem was caused by food in the first place. So If you have celiac disease and you don't know, and you've been eating lots of gluten, wonderful, wonderful gluten, but for you, that causes a lot of inflammation in your gut because you're, you, you technically essentially have an allergy to it in your gut. And so it causes problems and you stop eating gluten, your gut will heal due to a food change, but that's because you are actually allergic to it and the food is the cause of your problems. In other situations, it might improve things slightly, but it's not going to cure anything. You can't cure diabetes through diet, for example. That's a, that's one that people will believe on a regular basis. Uh, if we just stick with type 2 diabetes, where you, your insulin isn't working properly to the extent where you're not sensitive to it and insulin helps with your blood glucose and things, people will say that you can cure it with a low-carb diet. All you're doing is stemming or... Uh, covering over the problem now that might work for some people and that's great i've talked about that in the book that it's not i'm not disregarding this as a way of eating that people with type 2 diabetes can find very helpful but it doesn't cure anything it doesn't make the 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 diabetes go away it doesn't put the diabetes into remission if you start eating carbs again you're exactly back to where you were um and so i think it's very important that we understand the impact that food can have in context rather than are misinterpreting what it can do and what it does. Um, because that can cause a lot of harm and does cause a lot of harm. Because if you really think that a low carb diet is curing your diabetes, it gives you a whole, um, it gives you a real impression of what carbs are. It, it, it can lead to you being quite afraid of carbs. It can lead you not understanding what they do. It can lead you to to um, believing that food can cure that and you don't need the medication that you're being given. It, there, there are some very interesting and scary routes that people end up going down because they just don't understand it and they're being misled by people who don't understand it either.
1: I think there's so much discussion around diabetes. I think it's really good to talk about this. We've got type Hmm. 1 diabetes, which my understanding is that's often, um, that, that can often be diagnosed kind of earlier in life and isn't necessarily i mean related to weight as such it's it's just a no, part of your um your i suppose just
0: do you want me to, do you want me to like, do you want me to step in? is that me. helpful? Yeah. The Go. <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. That's, that's fine. Um, that's what I'm here for. Um, so, so yeah, so, so diabetes both times are related to your blood sugar levels, um, which is the level of glucose within your blood. Glucose is the main source of energy for your body, for your brain, and your body likes to keep a level of glucose at all times. And it's very important. If that glucose drops too low, you can end up going into a coma, you can have seizures, you can end up dying. If that glucose goes too high and that stays high for a chronic period of time, so for a long period of time, that can lead to other problems. It can lead to things like infections. It can lead to organ damage. It can lead to skin things, all sorts of issues. So your body tries to keep it in a in a in a range, and that's very important. Like everything with the body, like our our temperature is kept within a range, um, like our heart rate is kept within a range. Everything in our body works in these kind of ranges to be as healthy as possible. Um, and the thing that controls that blood glucose. It, the main thing is a, is a hormone called insulin, which is released from one of our organs called the pancreas. Diabetes, it, both types, is when that, that whole process isn't working properly. And type 1 diabetes is mainly a genetic condition, which you is not caused by food, but can often be triggered by some form of environmental thing. So people, uh, kids are rarely born with it from birth, um, but it can happen, it can occur usually at some point in their teenage years, Sometimes it can be from a viral illness that can trigger certain things that are already there. It's complex. Um, But what that does is your pancreas stops producing insulin. And so you just don't have any insulin and you end up having to give yourself insulin. And that's why people with type one diabetes have insulin injections um, Mm -hmm. on a daily basis, often multiple times a day, depending on the type of insulin they're being given, et cetera. Type two diabetes is something that can develop where your body becomes resistant to the insulin that that is being produced. So you're producing insulin, but your cells stop responding to it properly. And so the insulin usually helps take the glucose from the blood into your cells so your cells can use it. If your cells aren't responding properly to it, then that level of glucose in the blood stays high. Your cells stop being, stop being able to use it and all sorts of other things start happening. Um, and the type 2 diabetes is the one that causes most contention, because one of the mechanisms for that happening or one of the mechanisms for that insulin resistance occurring is a buildup of fat tissue within around the organs. Um, and so it's often just without any nuance whatsoever, it's often just labeled as a fat disease and it's a problem and you know, you will get diabetes because you're fat and you can cure it simply by just losing weight and all that kind of stuff. So that's, I think, I think that, that might be the section that you might want to ask me difficult questions.
1: (laughs) Yeah. I, I know that if you look at like troll comments on any social media post of any person in a larger body, there's going to be someone who says you're going to get diabetes and die. Mm. And it's so, I think misunderstood. I myself probably misunderstand it. So it would, yeah. What you kind of hinted that uh, weight might not be the sole reason that this is happening. Um, mm. What are the other kind of contributing factors? Is weight a role in type 2, two diabetes? And yeah, what, what's the nuance there?
0: Yeah, so yeah, it, it can be a role in it. Um, but it, there's lots of things to touch on. Firstly, it depends where that fat tissue is. So our, our fat cells can act a bit like an organ in the sense that they can produce hormones, they can produce things depending on where they are in the body. And if they're around the organs inside inside our abdomen, then they can produce hormones that can lead to insulin resistance. Um, we have a lot of evidence to suggest that. We have lots of studies to suggest that. We know that forwards and backwards in regards to if that fat tissue um, gets lost from around the organs, then uh, the insulin resistance can improve. So we know both ways that that is related. The difficulty here is that um, I'm I'm not denying that's the case. I'm just saying we need to be talking about this with more integrity and more nuance around these topics in the sense that we also know that there are lots of people that don't have much fat tissue around their organs who also have type two diabetes, who also develop it because there's a huge genetic component to type two diabetes too. Um, some of that genetic component is actually that people are more likely, if we go full circle here, more likely to hold more fat around their organs. They can't change that. That's a genetic predisposition. We all have genetic predispositions as to where we hold our fat tissue. Fat tissue is important. It gives us a store of energy. It gives us ability to survive, et cetera. We shouldn't be trying to get rid of it at all costs. And just some people, unfortunately, are more likely to hold it in certain areas. There's a reason why, um, and with giving a broad, broad, there are some stereotypes here, and I just want to be clear, this is, a, this is broad stereotypes rather than something that is always going to be the case. Um, the, the people of South uh, Asian descent um, are, will often be more likely to hold more fat around the organs within their abdomen, and so that's why the prevalence of type 2 diabetes is high in those populations um, so there's just one reason there uh, there's also a whole load of other factors that can improve or make our insulin resistance worse so things like uh, make, yeah so an improve or make it worse things like exercise things like fiber things like the type of food we actually have things like sleep things like stress so we have lots of other things that can improve matters but all we focus on is weight it's simply that is the only advice you're ever given. It's the only thing that is ever used to blame why. And it is blame. It's it, We're mm-hmm. talking about it in a way that is that attributes guilt and shame, that you've done something to yourself and this is why you have this condition and it's your responsibility to fix it. When it's way more complicated than that, um, even if you are a person who the the type two diabetes that you have is direct has directly been caused by fat tissue in your abdomen, it is still not a blame game. And the only response of you need to lose weight isn't correct either. We can admit and talk and acknowledge these topics without it going to. Well, there we go. The only answer is weight loss. Like we can we can have these conversations without denying the science that is there without denying the impact that, that weight can have on our health in certain circumstances and go, okay, but now what? Because if I'm going to tell you to lose weight, wow. mm. Like, So, so you're going to, if I'm the patient, so you're telling me to lose weight, can, can you, w- which method please? And which one is, which one is better than the others and which one is going to be more sustainable than the others and which one is going to result in my quality of life improving and my overall health actually improving and which one in six months time, am I going to be glad you recommended to me? and and there is no there is no um, <laughs> there is no proven answer to any of those questions. And so I'm still very much of the opinion and and uh, uh, there are other health at every size endocrinologists, people that deal with um, patients with type two diabetes um who who also agree that we can still treat patients with these conditions um who are living with type two diabetes in a way that is promoting other things that is improving their quality of life by talking about health promoting behaviors that may or may not lead to weight loss and ironically may also change the distribution of fat within the body to a uh, in someone who has insulin resistance to a beneficial way so exercise can even if you don't lose weight exercise can actually move fat around in the body which is a bit crazy but does happen and so you can improve insulin resistance despite the fact you haven't in quotes lost any weight simply through different lifestyle interventions and different lifestyle choices, which is great. Um, so yeah, there's there's way more nuance there and way more conversation that is often um, attributed to the whole, you're going to get diabetes and die because you're fat, which is the standard, bog standard response. Um, and it, yeah, I wish it would stop.
1: I do too, because I think it's doing everyone a disservice and it's doing just more more harm um okay related to diabetes i think then is the topic of sugar mm-hmm. um and fran said um what does sugar really do to you and should we avoid it and i know you've written all about this so <laughs> take it away
0: uh it gives you energy it's great um no look there, there is a i think we we, we need to have some understanding as what we're talking about here if we're talking about refined sugar so we're talking about sugar that has been um that has been taken from sugarcane that has been distilled down refined down into the white crystals that we consider to just be in quote sugar And yeah it has very little nutrients it has a lot of energy which can be great Um, but we when it's then added to all of our food it's not necessarily a good thing um and for people that are privileged enough to do a lot of home cooking to do a lot of kind of eating a lot of those kind of unprocessed foods and things like that they tend not to have a huge amount of intake of sugar and as our as our food environment has changed over the last 50 years our ironically actually our sugar con- consumption has, has actually gone down um but sugar has become more of a staple um in our lives because it's become cheaper to produce and it also makes food taste good so companies will put it in things um so i i think we need to be understanding of it without fearing it and the main reason to be honest the main reason why we need to reduce it if we can is for our teeth Like that's the main reason, like sugar, sugar causes dental caries. We can't like, you know, um, cavities in our teeth and we, we can't get away from that. That is just, that's something that happens. And that would be the main positive outcome for our health as a population. If we reduced our sugar consumption, if we were able to, because we would save our dentist bills. Um, and that'd be great. So, yeah, I, I really, I, I am very much of the opinion that we need to stop focusing on sugar as a problem And start looking at the wider food environment that we have, and start looking at the wider diet that we have, um, rather than just going, "Well, I put one teaspoon of sugar in my tea. uh, That's why I'm fat, or that's why I've got diabetes, or that's why this, or that's why that, or because it's nonsense." Like, you know, there's no need to put sugar in your tea. To be fair, like you're just causing problem with your with your teeth. But apart from that, it's not gonna it's not gonna kill you. It's not it's not the devil. We treat it as such.
1: So sugar isn't as addictive as cocaine or whatever
0: it's, the, the myth is. <laughs> no, I, we, we, you know, I think people have found new ways of trying to demonize it. And the, the addictive quality of sugar is something that people have, have started to harp on and continue to harp on. I mean, a whole whole flipping uh, Netflix in quote documentaries have been, have been written using that as the argument or using that as the logic for why we're addicted to sugar as a society. Food makes taste, sugar makes food taste great and it makes food very palatable. There's a reason why we like the taste of sweet things. And actually genetically we are predisposed to like the taste of sweet things because they have energy in them and we as as humans we haven't always lived in a time when there's lots of food around for for a lot of us not everybody has food abundance but for a lot of us we do now and our bodies don't, aren't used to that like we we've, we used to live in a time where you, we used to like be living in a in a situation where food was a scarcity and finding food was something that was um that was hard and was a whole process. Hence the whole hunter gatherer type communities that we used to live in. Um, And the reason why fruit has sugar in it tastes sweet is because the plants put sugar in there to help us to, to attract us to eat it. Because that's, it's like the circle of life. Like we are designed to enjoy the taste of sweet things, but food manufacturers know that. And so they put sweet things in other food that wouldn't normally have had sugar in it. Um, So, so yeah, we can, I, I now I'm completely lost as to what your question was because I went off on a well, ramble. You,
1: you, you compare in the in the book and I oh think the you talked addictive about this thing before, about how there was there's this famous study and like you know other podcasts I listen to talk about it like it's fact and it drives me nuts that uh, sugar lights up the same part of the brain that um, I think it was saying like ecstasy cocaine dial, cocaine, cocaine yeah. Um, um, and I think you make the point that puppies also light up that same part. So are we, are we addicted to puppies? <laughs> and I, I mean, like I that.
0: am. I, <laughs> oh, you have the cutest
1: dog. You really do.
0: Not a puppy anymore though. But um, yeah, she is. Uh, yeah. She's a, she's a fully grown adult dog now. Um, no, we look our brain. Uh, again, as I said, our brain enjoys these things. And so you you have sugar and it lights up these areas of the brain that make us feel good. Um, because that's fine. Of course it does. But also other food that doesn't have sugar in will also do that, depending on how much you enjoy that food. If people don't like sugar, it wouldn't necessarily light up the area of the brain. Um, some of it is a psychological aspect of enjoying the food that we that we have. And f- sugar in food has this weird um, hold over us a lot of the time where it's seen as, it's just seen as a treat. It's just seen as something, now we don't see fruit as a treat, right? But we see sugar in cakes as a treat. And so we see this as like this, oh, this is so exciting for me. I've got this thing and I'm not normally allowed it. And so it's going to have more of an impact on me when I do have it. And so, yeah, if you scan the brain, it lights up the same areas as cocaine. likes up these reward pathways. That's not logic to say that it is actually like addictive, like hard drugs addictive, because that's just simply not the case. It's Sugar can be exciting in that sense, but it's not addictive like hard drugs. That's just not the case. It doesn't have those same qualities. Nobody is having a psychological addiction to sugar like they do to other drugs, and it's it's it really does people a disservice to say that it does, especially people who do struggle with drug addiction because it's not the same. Like nobody is having withdrawal symptoms from from sugar. Um, nobody is you know selling their property or selling their possessions to to buy more sugar. Like it's and that seems like a drastic comparison to make but I think it's important to just really put into context these two things aren't the same um and it's not we, we need to stop trying to link the two
1: whilst we're on this addiction issue um like I mentioned one of my favorite podcasts is an American podcast and they talk about um AA and recovery a lot mm. they talk about they often talk to other people who would describe themselves as, as having addictive personalities and they often list within their addictions food being one of their addictions. I get, I'm curious about that because I don't Mm. know if I know the definitive answer of is food, not just sugar, food in general, something we can be addicted to because I know that there are plenty of people kind of um, uh, diagnosing people as food addicts. Mm. But also, are we addicted? I think then my other thought goes to, well, are we often addicted to things or feel a sense of addiction around things when we mentally tell ourselves it's bad it's restricted and is that more of a psychological issue where we've put food on a pedestal we've put sugar on a pedestal and so when we get those things we don't know how to control ourselves around those things because there's a scarcity mindset there and we feel that this could get taken away again and mm. i'm not allowed to um you know i'm not allowed to think of it's been Easter recently, right? We've had a ton of chocolate in the house. I'm not allowed to have this in the house usually. So I'm just gonna feel out of control around all this chocolate and eat it as much as I can as quickly as I can. And, you know, I'm, and then you kind of have that experience and maybe you draw from that and you conclude, well, I'm addicted to chocolate. I'm addicted mm. because I don't know how to behave around it. Is a lot of that down to our psychological... Um, for psychological reasons and our relationship with food and that disordered relationship with food that we've already spoken about.
0: A lot of the individual food items, be that sugar, be that chocolate, be that Haribo sweets, be that Pringles, <laughs> be that whatever you want to label as that food that you, that you, in quotes, don't have control over um, and therefore must be addicted to. A lot of that, yeah, you're right. A lot of that is is hugely psychological in the fact of this restrict binge cycle that we mm. can put ourselves in when we're thinking about our relationship with food and not allowing us to have something, not allowing ourselves to eat a certain food item, unless we've, uh, you know, been good, unless we've exercised, unless it's a special occasion, unless it's a national holiday, um, gives that food item so much power over us psychologically. Um, That, that is, not a true addiction as such and I think that a lot of that if working on our relationship with food can make a huge difference and starting to normalize those food items um, is a difficult process it's not something that can be done overnight but starting to normalize those food items uh helps remove a lot of the power that it can have over us psychologically um that's different to the overwhelming uh, sorry the overarching title of food addiction which I'm Uh, the the general consensus seems to be that yes food addiction as a general phrase is a real thing from an addiction medical perspective but it's complicated um and that's not there may be certain food items within that that people are more eat more frequently but it's the gen. i think it's the over, as far as i'm aware the overarching food addiction title um that i think is can be real i think there's a Uh, I I think it's been I think there are there's actually criteria to it um, from a medical perspective but the difficulty here and even 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 saying that I think there's so much difficulty trying to unpick just because something is a medical diagnosis that doesn't necessarily validate it either because we used to have medical diagnoses that weren't accurate in the past many of them um from our lack of understanding around some of these topics um so i don't know and I, i'm not the expert on that side of things but i'd be intrigued as to um to see how many people who are diagnosed with that kind of thing um i would i would be very intrigued to to know about their relationship with food and how they see food and whether there's an whether there's that fear of gaining weight that's an element to that and whether this is actually a different eating disorder by the same name rather than necessarily food addiction whether this is something different like whether this actually falls under the category of binge eating disorder as an eating disorder um and whether this is from a cycle of restricting and binging and then now I'm addicted to food I don't know I uh but I think that's a that's a different conversation um and it's a it's a wider one to the being addicted to individual food items which isn't which from a general consensus isn't a thing, um, but I think it's yeah, I think it's it's difficult because there are there will be people who are like oh yes, no that's me, I'm addicted to food in general,
1: and uh, it can feel like a very real experience. It can feel yeah. very real and
0: but also we all need true. to eat. Like so it's this yeah. whole thing of like I'm it's very different to I'm addicted to alcohol where uh, you don't need to have alcohol to survive, mm. or I'm addicted to gambling and you don't need to have gambling to survive food we all have to eat we all have to eat food so it's it still is a confusing one to me how you can be addicted to something that your brain is telling you you need to survive it's very hard that it's like i don't know it's yeah hard i I mean you can be addicted to you can be addicted to exercise you can you know there are psychological things that can occur um but but it's i think that's a that could be a whole podcast in and of itself and i think we need to talk to somebody who is more knowledgeable in that area perhaps
1: well yeah well we'll work on it we'll work on it we'll find (laughs) the person you have your own podcast and I have this podcast so between us I'm sure we can come up with a guest (laughs) 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 um okay so on the topic of the sugar thing so in the same uh kind of umbrella topic Freya wanted to know what's the deal with artificial sweeteners are they are you know, are they helpful to reducing that sugar intake to, you know, a reasonable level um, for those of us perhaps who have had, uh, you know, a lot of sweet things or, or like a lot of sweet things. Or, I mean, from my experience, artificial sweeteners often, I've have t- had a lot of those zero calorie syrups and all those sorts of things. I mean, it tastes like nail varnish remover. So <laughs> I don't know if I personally like it, but, you know, are they helpful harmful what's the deal
0: so in and of themselves they're not harmful they are that we, we we get afraid by the word artificial we get afraid by things that are chemicals that sound bad they're not harmful for us in any way shape or form um they're they're hundreds of thousands of times less harmful than caffeine and we we drink coffee like there's no tomorrow um so no they're not harmful the question is how are they used right and so i guess it's um it depends. In certain circumstances, I, I think they can be useful, but it depends why they're there in the first place. So let's take something like uh, Coke, right? Not not the cocaine Coke, the, the Coca-Cola.
1: Coca-Cola.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, I just had to clarify that because we'd already been talking about cocaine. So just, a, yeah. Um, so, so take something like Coca-Cola. It has a lot of sugar in it. Not great for your teeth in any way, shape or form. Um, <clears throat> Diet Coke is an alternative to that. That uses artificial sweeteners to give you a very similar flavour and sweetness and taste, without the sugar that might end up causing harm to your teeth. I personally prefer Diet Coke as a flavour. I feel like now I've uh, because I've been drinking it um, for a while. I say years in terms of when I last had a, a regular Coca Cola. Mm. Um, when I have the other one, it feels really sickly to me now. It just feels way too sweet, and I it, I don't want it. Um, so for me, that's something that if I if I fancy a cold diet Coke from a can, by the way, um, you know, or a bottle, Superia. but bottles are way too expensive, but can, cans, can's are great. Um, if you're, you know, that that's something that for me is helpful, um, and would be better in, a, if you we were looking at overall health would be better for me than drinking a standard Coke because it's not great for my teeth. Um, so it's difficult to go, it's good or it's bad because actually we're in a situation where, uh, something like coca-cola has been developed in the first place and then we go back to the conversation around the food environment right and is that something that we necessarily is that something that if we could remove the psychological aspect and the whole disordered eating talk around this is that something that is beneficial to be within our within our diet full stop Um, or would it be better for us to be drinking water and Actually, yes, it would because diet Coke can also do wreck havoc on your teeth because it's um, it's actually even more acidic than normal coke um, so there's conversations there it's it's not straightforward and so I think if we get to a point where we're choosing diet everything, that might be indicative of something else
1: yeah um,
0: and that's what I started doing initially was I would pick diet everything and artificial sweetener, everything. And that wasn't a problem because of the artificial sweeteners. It was a problem because of my mindset as to why I was doing it. And so I would pick you know, um, ice cream that had artificial sweeteners in it. But the reason why is because I was afraid of gaining weight. And I was therefore spent choosing to spend more money on the more expensive ice cream that had artificial sweeteners in it. Artificial sweeteners weren't the problem, unless you ate too many of them and they give you diarrhea. That can sometimes happen. Um, But the problem was my mindset. The problem was why I was doing it, why I was choosing it, why I thought I couldn't trust myself with the normal kind of these kind of foods. Um, And I had to pick the artificial sweetener version, something like Coca-Cola versus diet Coke, I think is, we should probably, that would probably be better. Um, But it's all context dependent. and It all depends on why, why this stuff is a problem. And ironically, if I'm allowed to say this, um, if you're asking that question, it might be worth challenging yourself as to why you're asking the question. Um, Mm. If you feel like, if you're feeling like artificial sweeteners are a problem, Mm. why, why are you focusing on that as a problem in the first place? Is it just because you've been told artificial sweeteners are going to give you cancer and they're going to kill you and all that kind of stuff. And fine, we address the lies and that's great. But are you worried about it because because there's something else going on there that you're like oh maybe i'm having too many in my diet but actually well why are you having lots of them because you're choosing to pick the diet options over everything else you're only buying the you're only buying the uh, the the snack bars that have artificial sweetness in them rather than normal sugar because you feel like that's what you should be doing because you're worried about weight like what is it what is the the driving factor behind those kind of things and then that goes back to our conversation around a relationship with food And are there things there that are overwhelmingly impacting our food choices that aren't actually about health, but are about something else that we need to, that we need to address?
1: I do think when we're talking about any of these things, it really does come back to like that individual relationship with food that I think often gets ignored. Mm. So something I am really interested in, and this leads on from the Diet Coke, Coke thing, is we're often told that a lot of food is the cause of cancer. Um, and I'm interested in how food can maybe play a role in, in quote causing cancer, but also in cancer treatment as well, in how food we can food is often touted as the cancer cure. I'm thinking of things like celery juice I think was originally um recommended mm-hmm. ha- or has been um recommended by some sort of uh doctors I use that term loosely in this sense health Um, gurus let's let's just call them that health gurus yeah I think yeah good let's let's (laughs) let's make that um clear health gurus are recommending things like cancer um celery juice to cure cancer so what are your thoughts on with obviously cancer affecting so many people Hmm. what are your thoughts on the food conversation within that
0: I mean, the, I feel like this was probably one of the longest chapters in the book. Um, so mm. <laughs> there's a lot. For this here. reason,
1: I'm sure.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. There is. There's a lot of conversation here, and I would, I would um, implore anyone listening that w- I, we can only talk about this in, to a certain extent. But please do go and. I mean, I would always advise you to go and buy my book anyway because I think it's great and I, I love people to read it. But please do about around this conversation because there's more here than we can talk about. Um, however. Mm. Uh, So I think that there's definitely a conversation to be had around risk and cause. Um, And so, for example, there are certain things that exercise has been linked to in regards to risk of cancers. Um, And so if somebody doesn't exercise very much and they get a certain cancer, would that make it fair for their doctor to say, well, the reason you've got this is because you didn't exercise? your lack of exercise has caused you to get cancer. You'd be hard pressed to find anybody who says that. And for very good reason, because it wouldn't be really accurate because cancer is incredibly complicated. There are lots of different things that play a role. Um, But that doesn't mean that we can't advise people to exercise because of many things, including the fact that it improves the way our body functions and might reduce the risk of certain cancers. Um, but that's not the main reason we encourage people to exercise. Right. And I think there's crossover there with food where food, the, the food choices that we are privileged enough to be able to make can impact our risk of certain cancer. Let's take colon cancer as a very typical one. Um, so in terms of our dietary patterns, the more fiber we get, the healthier our gut lining is and the, the less risk of colon cancer we have. Um, the more red and processed meat, processed meat mainly, red meat as well, the, the evidence is, is harder to link, but there's still elements there. Um, the more of those types of foods we eat, the, uh, those can increase our risk of cancer because of the processing um, methods that get used in regards to things like nitrates. And so the more of that we eat, the more potential damage it can have to the gut lining and the more risk of that damage to the cells turning into cancer. But it's very hard to take someone who has developed colon cancer and say the reason you have had the reason you have cancer is because you ate lots of processed meat. And that wouldn't be accurate either because you can't boil something down just to that. But we can have a conversation about well let's see if we can reduce the amount of processed meat in our diet, things like bacon, things like you know, um, processed ham, Parma ham, unfortunately, which is all the great stuff. Um, but, uh, we can definitely have a conversation around, well, if we can reduce those in our diet, that is probably good overall for our health. It's not going to prevent you getting colon cancer. Cause that's not the be all and end all. And that's not the only thing that can lead to it. Um, but it might be good for you and it's going to improve your general gut health. That is a good thing. So let's see if we can reduce the amount of processed meat in your diet and let's see if we increase the amount of fiber in your diet not just for the cancer reason but for all sorts of other reasons so i think it is context dependent how we talk about this stuff and it's very important how we talk about this stuff because if we talk about it in the wrong way we can then start uh, assuming certain things that are then or can then be very harmful for us and if we are of the opinion that certain foods cause cancer directly and therefore we should be demonizing those foods because I don't want cancer. I'm never going to eat red meat again. If we have that attitude, it's very easy to have the attitude of, well, if certain foods can cause it, then certain foods must be able to cure it. And that's simply not true. Um, it, it, categorically, there is, there's a lot of nuance in a lot of these conversations. But the statement that food can cure cancer, there is zero nuance there. It's simply not true. Um, So I think it's very important to understand that the way we talk about these topics can lead to a lot of harm if we're not careful. And we, we only need to look at the amount, like you mentioned, in regards to things like celery juice. We only need to look at the amount of diets that get sold on the promise of curing cancer to see that we have a problem. And they're not, they're not going anywhere. They're not reducing in their popularity. Um, and there are many reasons for that. And a lot of those reasons are very sad. And a lot of those reasons are definitely not the fault of the person choosing to undergo those diet in any way, shape or form. Um, so I hope that that's for people listening. That's not what I'm doing. I'm not um, telling you that it's your fault that you're doing this kind of stuff. And I understand like the complementary therapies when it comes to cancer, 100% have their place. Things like, um, things like hypnotherapy, things like acupuncture, things like um, well, chiropractors. So there, there are things, unfortunately, that get sold on improving your outcome from cancer, but they can improve people's quality of life while they're going through what is very horrible treatment a lot of the time. If it's someone that needs to go through chemotherapy and radiotherapy for a cancer, that stuff is really shit. It's not nice. We're not pretending it's nice, but it's the only thing that will get rid of the cancer. And so it's necessary. It's a necessary evil in those situations. So if there are other things that make people feel better, that help people symptoms throughout that period, that's great, but we need to have them in context. We need to understand what they do. It's when people start choosing to do that and reject normal treatment is where the real harm lies because people die. There isn't, again, there's no nuance there. People just die. Um, and, when people die that didn't have to die, that's a real shame. And that's something we need to be, that's like, shame is the nice way of putting it. Like that's not okay. Uh, so challenging that kind of stuff, I think is really important. To give people real context as to the impact that food can have on, on our health and the impact that food can have on our cancer, um, on our cancer development, on our cancer treatment is not, it's not going to do it. And even more so there, there's even Um, something else to mention when it comes to cancer recovery and cancer treatment, the cancer is a process in the body that uses up an awful lot of energy, which is one of the reasons why people end up accidentally unintentionally losing weight when they um, have cancer and they don't realize it, or even when just when they do know, and they're going through treatment, a lot of people end up with a lot of wasting. They lose a lot of mass, um, not just fat, but lots of muscle mass as well. And that stuff can be really harmful for our health, full stop. But at the same time, it means that the food that we eat can be quite important when it comes to cancer treatment and cancer recovery, but not important in the sense of like, you need to make sure you're eating lots of veg, more important of the sense of you need to make sure you're eating full stop, because it's very hard for people to get enough energy because they the, lots of the cancer treatments that we have make people feel nauseated, give people diarrhea, make people not feel hungry in any way, shape or form. So they're not going to want to eat some sort of avocado smoothie and kale brunch thing with a poached egg and some goji berries. Like no one gives a shit. They're just, they're not hungry and they're wasting away. And if we can get food into them, if they can get food, then that can really help in regards to their recovery. Not because the food is magical, but because they have enough energy and they need that energy during that treatment process. And when people are being advised to go on these very restrictive diets to cure things like... The keto diet or um or juice fasting or intermittent fasting to cure cancer it's really really dangerous because not only are they going they're doing something that is bullshit, full stop but they're also doing something that makes it even harder for them to get energy in and that is what they need it doesn't matter what it is they just need food you can worry about the the nutrients later they need energy now um, and it's something that people don't often understand and people will often chastise people for like, you know, this is all I can eat right now. This is, this is, I, I just need, you know, I'm just going to eat sweets. That's fine. It's energy. Your body can use that energy to help keep it alive. And and that's what you need at that moment in time. Um, so yeah, I, I hope that that's kind of like the sum up of some of those conversations. But There is a lot. Yeah, there. And I
1: just ha- have so much compassion for people who who are living with cancer being treated for cancer but also the family and friends who would do anything in the world they possibly could to make their loved one uh better and therefore Mm. i think there's a certain level of of vulnerability that gets played upon there where people um they're desperately looking for answers they're desperately looking for something within their control that they can do for themselves and i totally totally appreciate that and I think like you said like let's not ever lay the blame with those people but there are people who are willingly um telling people that you know if you I mean we haven't even spoken about things like essential oils but if you're doing these things as alternative that you know this that to reject your the the formal treatment the medical treatment Mm, and to mm. go with these other things um yeah
0: there are people using the the alternative therapies as an actual alternative rather yes. than complementary, yes. um and saying that you know this will work because the chemotherapy is actually what's killing you no it's not like that's just really really harmful and dangerous misinformation um we wouldn't give it if it was it's it's it, it if we had a better option we would um so yeah i, I mean i do I, I do i do understand but it doesn't mean it's okay
1: it, yeah, it, it, it isn't. We kind of mentioned about alternative therapies. And another question that came in was about, um, and there, there are a few people that asked this question. So I've kind of summarized it about, you know, asking your thoughts on um, other um, practices. So whether it be Chinese medicine, Ayurvedic um, treatments Hmm. and naturopaths. And I don't know if we can necessarily lump them all together, but, um, I did, you know, (sighs) what are your thoughts on those? Do they have a role? I I say this as, um, having a, um, you know, part of my extended family are Chinese and they very much, you know, will rely on, um, herbal medicine, Hmm. for example, often, for you know, in the way that we would look to something just for a common cold, say we'd look to something, then they would automatically um sometimes it feels like it's the opposite, and yes you know often they get the same outcomes, so I just wondered, i mean that's a very anecdotal perspective, yeah, but I just wondered um. I'm sure with with everything like all things these things aren't necessarily a very um binary (laughs) yes no no response but um yeah what are your thoughts on those kind of practices
0: (laughs) there's there's a lot here and um I think it's I think it's very important to acknowledge the fact that quote-unquote western medicine um has Had issues in the past with rejecting anything that isn't white and Western. Um, That was my
1: follow up question. (laughs) Do you think this is a Western um, kind of white supremacy thing?
0: Yeah. So I I think it it has been. uh, And I'm sure there are still elements to it currently. Um, That's not what I'm talking about uh, when I went in regards to using the phrase food isn't medicine. Um, because I know there is a conversation to be had around the cultural importance of some of these beliefs. There is a distinction to be made, though, about the cultural importance of them and the potential for harm for others. Let, let's take something simple like uh, touting the benefits of chicken soup broth, chicken broth for mm-hmm. for a cult. Right. Um, very traditional. Um not evidence based but doesn't matter literally doesn't matter um somebody has a cold and they get given some warm chicken soup and they're told that it's going to make them better uh that's fine i i you know i'm i'm not i'm not here to start debunking general practices <laughs> that don't cause that don't <laughs> cause harm like you know that's fine um and also something like a cold will always go away by itself so that's fine and if if you think that by having chicken soup it's going to go away a day sooner or whatever, that's also fine. That's not where the harm lies. And I think mm-hmm. condemning things like that simply for the sake of condemning it without understanding the cultural relevance and the family dynamic and the the the, the diversity that is very much within these cultural um practices, I think is is. is is dangerous territory to be doing that simply for the sake of doing it. um However, to then say, therefore, all Chinese medicine is fine is not okay either. And we, as I, as I said or started to, and this is this is why this is a difficult topic. So if we going to have to go back and forth here.
1: That's okay.
0: Western medicine has adopted certain practices from other cultures and claimed them as their own and refused to give credit to those cultures like
1: done a rebrand yeah yeah
0: made them westernized and refused to admit that that was where they found them from and there have been certain things over the years let, let's just take before we knew very much about medicine whatsoever there were certain things that we would do and we would get it right every so often accidentally right so certain plants can be made into medicine um we we get certain chemotherapy agents from certain trees for example um and so there are certain plants and certain uh certain practices that used to take place that did something they weren't perfect but they did do something and they may have improved quality of life in certain conditions um they may have even cured certain things uh, however we're at a point now where we have worked out which of those practices do something from a scientific perspective or i believe we we've got to a point where we have figured out the vast majority of which ones have um, because we no longer practice medicine simply on trial and error, we now practice medicine in a in a fashion of evidence base. So we now trial things with an evidence base and we work out whether there's evidence for that thing doing what we think it has done. And so what we're left with is a lot of the cultural heritage, but also a lot of the woo. Air verdict medicine is something that I think carries with it a lot of woo without trying to get in too much trouble. Um, because there are lots of practices there that are claimed to be evidence-based that just simply aren't. And if you want to do them, that's fine. But but, but we also have to be accurate um, in how we talk about some of these practices and some of these methods and not believe that they can replace the tried and trusted and evidence-based practices that we now have. And this isn't just Western medicine. These these This evidence-based medicine is practiced globally now. Um, it started as Western medicine, and it started in probably a very white supremacist manner. Mm. But these practices are now, the way that we run hospitals are now a global thing. The way that we mm. use medication and drugs and advice from an evidence base is global. And certain cultures will still incorporate some of their local practices, and that's fine. It's what it's what the purpose is um and what it does and going well you know well this food did cure me like, well, because and using the cultural relevance of it is fine but let's stick to it being for cultural relevance rather than using cultural relevance to justify arguing that an evidence base exists that doesn't uh eh. Yeah, <laughs> does that help? Yeah, Maybe. I knew it was
1: going to be a big question, but I think you gave a great answer. Um, I, I, I think that's that's really helpful to know. Okay, so you yourself are um on social media, and I think if if anyone follows you online, they know that you're um, not afraid to call a spade a spade, and you're very happy to um, and I think it's important that you use your platform to, you know call out misinformation when you're seeing it. Um, I want to know that how do we know when we're on online and we're in these vulnerable positions about, you know, who we should be looking to get health and advice from? Who who should, what are the, I suppose another way, an easy way to put it, uh, what are the red flags to, um, that may come up that, we can use to navigate as to like who is who is a helpful person to to get our information from
0: yeah it's it's hard because social media has changed the landscape and what I mean by that is (laughs) if you uh, generally if it was something to do with your health in general a doctor would be a very good person as a plumb line to go and get that advice from Um, but social media has changed things in the fact that the weird and wonderful and the, the uh, obtuse and the, the, the nonsense has been given a platform to thrive. And so it can, it can seem very confusing because even though the vast majority of people who are trained, for example, the vast majority of people who are trained in any sort of nutrition would never use the phrase food as medicine. You wouldn't know that from online you just you, that's not the impression that you would get social media makes it seem like that's the plumb line that food as medicine is is the standard that everybody agrees with and somebody like myself is going against the grain whereas ironically I'm not going against the grain here this is this is very universally accepted within people who understand and who are trained in nutritional science it's just we don't we we, we don't realize that because there are so many people online using their platform to talk about this in a way that makes it seem uh, like that's the normal it's a bit like when you have a, a flat earther versus a scientist on tv debating and it makes it seem like the sides are 50 50 it makes it seem like the argument you it's very valid to choose one or the other whereas actually the people that believe that the earth is flat are so few and far between it's unreal um but you wouldn't know that from watching certain debates on tv because it wouldn't you would never fit them in a studio if you had 99 scientists who know what they're talking about, about the shape of the earth. And one person who's like, yeah, but I did my experiments at home and it's flat. It just wouldn't fit in the studio, but it would be more representative of what's going on. Um, there are some red flags though, that I would say to, to go back to your actual question. Um, and one of those is just, it, it's just food is medicine. Like if, if somebody is constantly talking about food in a manner that is, being touted as a treatment or a cure for things that is a huge red flag not only does it show a lack of understanding in terms of what food can do but it often leads to other things um, and it's best to get out of there as quickly as possible um, it's a very I, i've i think you can become tune in tune to it quite quickly and it, it often takes me seconds now to look at someone's profile and be like oh, that oh. um and often it's just the word holistic in the bio for example or the word natural in the bio or the word evidence-based ironically because most people who are evidence-based don't write it in their bio so there's certain things that you'll end up picking up on um or functional or you know just avoid those kind of words um the other thing is it's often that people are just making everything about weight and you'll see that and the more you notice it the more that you will become in tune to it, and you're like oh yeah that is actually what's going on every single post it might be uh it might be covered in a blanket of it's about health it's about wellness but when you actually distill it down you realize that every post is about doing something to avoid weight gain and when somebody is making health out to be as simple as that and everything is focused on weight gain you you get out of there like it's just not it's not healthy full stop which seems ironic but it's not um, and it's one way that it's the reason why apps like Noom, for example, are so compelling because they are to be about health and well-being, And we're talking about lifestyle choices, but if you're actually in tune, to some of this stuff, it takes seconds to look at it and go, yeah, this is a weight loss app. Uh yeah you're not counting calories, but they're putting they're putting color labels on foods and it's about avoiding foods and et cetera, et cetera and, okay, so it's a weight loss app um and so you can start picking some of this stuff out and go, "Ah, okay, this is a weight loss account disguised in a blanket of wellness um and so that's a that's quite a red flag too <laughs> um and then finally, I think just one of the easy ones to do is if somebody's t- telling you to cut out whole foods or whole food groups um and that happens an awful lot too like just avoid everything that talks about keto, literally everything, avoid everything that talks about intermittent fasting. um, Because it's, it always comes with it, just nonsense. It just comes with it, complete bullshit. If you don't want to eat breakfast, that's fine. Don't eat breakfast. You don't need to follow accounts that sell intermittent fasting as a way of life. It's not a way of life. It's a diet. Um, And it's a diet that has turned into something that is wellness related now, supposedly, despite the fact that, the claims around the wellness are also bullshit. Um, and so, personally, I would avoid everything that that doesn't advise a balanced diet and a real balanced diet. Not like we're talking about balance, but also eating very few carbs. It's not balance. Um, so, yeah, I think th- those would be some red flags to me that I would say to to just are a safe are safe things to avoid. Like if I ever start telling you to cut out entire food groups, please unfollow me. Like it's not, (laughs) but, but it's just, but it's a red flag. Like why, Mm. why would anybody on a platform like that on social media, who actually knows what health is advise somebody to cut out entire food groups? You wouldn't. And so it's a huge red flag. Why would anybody try and distill everything down to weight? You wouldn't because it's not accurate. So it's a red flag. Why would anybody risk, um, misleading people into believing that food can cure disease or can cure cancer if they knew about health properly they wouldn't unfollow them like you can you can those are some i think some quite good blanket red flags to to curate your feed in a way that is healthy for you and the less we follow these people the less of a platform we'll keep giving them like it's just <laughs> oh i think the last one toxins anyone that starts talking about toxins and um, and, and detoxing in any way, shape or form, even if they're doing it in a way that seems reasonable, like, Oh, we're, well, we're actually just eating to support our natural detox pathways in the body. It's still bullshit. It is still nonsense. Um, and one of the reasons why Mark Hyman is a, is a charlatan because he just constantly talks about detoxing from the environment and eating natural food. It They're all look red flags, natural detox, just Unfollow it.
1: I finish every episode by asking the guest, what has been your most recent train happy moment? So have you had a train happy moment recently?
0: Ooh. um, I don't know, actually. I don't think I have. And I think I should probably get on that. Maybe that's the answer to this question.
1: (laughs) Well, I always think train happy moments don't have to be necessarily even related to exercise. It could be related to resting. It could just be any moment where you've listened to your body, worked with it. And, you know, whether that's been deciding that you need extra sleep because you've just released a book or whatever it is. (laughs) Well, okay.
0: Well, in which case, yes, I did actually say to Claire yesterday, can we start going to bed earlier, please? Because I have lots of stuff that needs to be done, and I can't function properly if we when we because we're going to bed so late. So there we go. So there, that might be my that that'll be my train happy moment.
1: I think it's good sometimes to not always have exercise based because I like hmm. to think of it as just just generally learning to like listen to your body, trust your body, and so that's great. I'm also very with you on the needing to get earlier to bed to train. Hmm. So. Right, where can everyone find you, find Food Isn't Medicine, support your work, and hear more about your message?
0: Uh, well, I'm on social media, Instagram mainly. Uh, if you just type in Dr Joshua, D-R Joshua, I should come up. My last name is Walrich, but no one can spell that. So just Dr Joshua on Instagram. I'll, I'll come up, come and follow me, come and say hi, come and tell me I'm wrong about stuff. It's more fun. Um, and uh, the links to my book are there. Although if you just search Food Isn't Medicine on Google, If you search food is not medicine, it it doesn't seem to come up as easily So just food isn't. It's a contraction, I-S-N apostrophe T. (laughs) So if you search that um, at the moment, uh, it's pretty much on sale in most places in Europe and Australasia uh, in terms of when it's going to come officially to the US and Canada and some of the rest of the world working on it. Although it can be ordered in on fancy websites like Book Depository if you're super keen to get hold of it, Um, which a lot of people have been, which is great. It's been a great honour.
1: I will link. uh, I will link you below and places to get the book for sure. And I mentioned earlier, but you do have your own podcast, so feel free to plug that.
0: Oh yeah, I'm sorry. I see. God plug (laughs) everything. Um, Yeah, my podcast is called Willing to Be Wrong, um, which I think is. uh, I like to use. Uh, inflammatory titles full stop i think it gets people gets people talking um so yeah come and find me on that as well and i have a feeling that we'll get tally on that at some point soon um to talk about some of her history (laughs) yeah yeah we'll talk about some of your history around how you changed your your approach to physical training and being a pt and all that kind of stuff i think it'll be very interesting so have a have a have an eye out for that one
1: well, I think we both have that in common. We both are willing to be wrong. And I think that's um, something we both, yeah. Have well, of- I definitely
0: want to be willing to be wrong. I'm not all the time because <laughs> it's hard, right? Like you don't, mm. nobody wants to be willing to be wrong, but I think I want to want to be willing to be wrong and, and hopefully implement that as much as possible.
1: <laughs> I think that's a good mindset. All right, it's been fabulous to have you back. No doubt we'll have you on the podcast again, but thank you so much.
0: No worries, thanks for having me.
1: And that is it for this week's episode of the Train Happy Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you took something away from this episode. And if you did, please let me know by sending feedback. You can find us on Instagram at Train Happy Podcast. Or even better, it would be amazing if you could rate and review the podcast on whichever platform you're listening as it really, really helps to support and boost the Train Happy message. And remember, if you have had a recent moment where this stuff has just started clicking for you, then share your story with us via email, trainhappypodcast at gmail.com to become the Train Happy Trooper of the week. And if you have a burning question you would like me to answer, then please send those in too, and it may be answered in our bonus Q&A episodes. Once again, thank you for listening, and I will speak to you soon.